Hey everyone, welcome to We Disagree, Let's Talk About It, the podcast aimed at discussing controversial issues without calling your adversary a Nazi, snowflake, or whatever other insults are used in the popular media today. I'm your host, Joe Strahl, and I have a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Akron. I'm now working in technical sales out in Iowa. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm pretty opinionated about just about everything, and I've recently become very interested in politics and political and controversial issues that are happening in the U.S., One thing that I hate is that you can't watch any major news sources without someone saying that their adversary is a terrible person and that you shouldn't listen to their points simply because of that. It seems like they don't really care about talking about the issues at hand. This podcast is aimed at changing that. In this first episode, I'm going to be talking about college athlete compensation with good friends from college, Brandon Kreitz and Hayden Grover, and another good friend and brother-in-law, Paul Taylor. Brandon received a bachelor's in English education and a master's in higher education administration from the University of Akron. He's now working at the University of Mount Union, a private liberal arts school in Northeast Ohio, as an admissions representative where he works with freshmen, grad, and transfer students, including student-athletes. Hayden was a four-year football player at the University of Akron. He graduated with a bachelor's in public relations and is now the PR coordinator at Green Circle Growers. Paul was a graduate of the University of Idaho with a degree in music composition. He's now an assistant composer at NFL Films, as well as a freelance composer and producer in Philadelphia, New Jersey. And he got paid for being in marching band. Paul, you want to start by talking about that? Yeah, so um, the marching band... Some marching bands have a scholarship for uh, their players, um, but as you become members of the crew or assistant directors or directors, you actually get uh, a pay stipend. Um, you know, you have to fill out the tax information, W-9, all that good stuff. And as your responsibilities grow, so does your pay. It's not a lot of money, but it's still compensation for your work on and off the field. So... At most major universities, do you think that more people come to the football games for the football or the halftime show? Um, I think that they come for the experience. Obviously, football is what brings them there, but the entire overall experience is what makes it such a big, a big event, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, bigger with you know more advertisers, more shows, more spots, more music, more performances. And players get better and better, too. So I think it's everything, to be honest. Sure, yeah. So, Hayden, you were one of the performers on the field as well. Can you go over what your experience was like at Akron while you were on the football team? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, as a part of a Division One football program, um, it's really less of uh, kind of a pastime and more of a way of life. Um, for those four years, it really is um, what determines your schedule almost any day of the year. Um, so it's definitely a big commitment. Um, but that being said, of course, when you go in, everyone uh, understands what you're getting yourself into. No one's kind of caught off guard by, oh, I have practice tomorrow. What? Um, so, uh, yeah. So it's a, go ahead. So what are different players on the team offered as far as scholarships and gifts and any sort of compensation? How does that go? Yeah. Um, so with any uh, Division One football team, you have a select number. Um, slightly over half the team usually will be on a full-ride scholarship, which includes um, paying for their education, 
paying for their books, paying for food, and also paying for housing. Um, and that all comes into, um, they'll, they'll get like a monthly stipend where it'll say, this is for your food and housing and um, just anything else that you could possibly need to be a successful student athlete for this month. And then you have your preferred walk-ons and your walk-ons who are guys who come in and they'll get the gear. So typical gear, you know, you'll get a backpack, you'll get a sweatshirt, a sweatsuit, a couple of shirts, maybe a pair of shoes or two. And then obviously all your stuff that you have for practice, your cleats, your workout clothes um, are all included as well. And from semester to semester in college, you actually get to keep um, your workout clothes so personally, over four years, I have uh, enough workout clothes to last me for a very long time as long as I don't gain any weight. Um, um, Brandon, what do you see coming in from the college perspective working in higher education? Well, first, the most important thing to remember is that it absolutely varies from school to school. Um, a D3, D2, and D1 school are all going to have drastically significant differences in what NCAA scholarships they're willing to to disperse and like what Hayden said, how much financial aid in terms of an athletic scholarship each student athlete will get. Uh, The process typically goes that the athlete is a high school student and they're going through the college search process and getting recruited. After they fill out an application and are admitted to a school, the school will send uh, that student a financial aid package, which will have everything that the student will really be getting from that school. It it can include academic scholarships, the athletic scholarships that they may be getting, um, and any uh, federal federal aid that they might be receiving from the FAFSA. And that's separate. That's, you know, need-based aid. So that's not necessarily what we're talking about today. But all that stuff typically combines into, you know, their total financial aid package. And the thing to note is that all of this stuff typically comes before the student even declares that they're going to be enrolling at a school. So the student will get their financial aid offer. They'll be told by a coach probably who's, who's worked hard to recruit them. And they'll say, Hey, congratulations. You know, you're getting, you're getting a $15,000 football scholarship and it, and it makes the student feel good. And it's a, it's a recruiting tool and it helps the student pay for pay for college. Okay, great. So we've kind of gone over, what's currently happening now. Now I want to dive into the revenue generated at different universities through the athletic program. So I know that at Akron, it might not be as large as at other schools, but Hayden, I remember talking to you after you guys traveled down to Oklahoma and traveling to Penn State. Mm -hmm. You guys would find out that the school made a lot of money from that. So do you remember how much the school would make just from traveling for away games? Um, so, for instance, when we were asked to come out to Penn State, it was, um, I believe, in uh, somewhere like $100,000 um, to the university just for us to come play that game. And there were some uh, seasons where we would play two, even three of those games. And if you were fortunate, um, such as we were when we played Marshall one year, they paid us, we came down, and we actually beat them. So it was a little bittersweet experience for them. But um, that is one source of revenue that um, football teams actually pull in besides just uh, fans is actually going to these larger schools and getting paid to play them. Sure. And now, uh, I pulled up a page that has the top 10 schools as far as revenue is concerned in 2012 and 2013. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go over what some of those schools made in total revenue. So the university of Texas on a lot of studies that I've looked at is the number one school, whether their team is good or bad, they make the most money. Um, so in, 2012, 2013 season, 
That school made $109 million off of their football program. Uh, next was Michigan at $81 million, University of Georgia at $77 million, University of Florida at $74 million, and so on. Uh, and even the number 10 school, Ohio State, makes about $61 million a year on football. And mm-hmm. now that's the total revenue to the university. Um, and I wasn't really able to find any studies that showed the revenue that the broadcasters are making of this. So, you know, there are people broadcasting every single game. And sure, they have to pay for the rights, and they're paying that to the university. But they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't making a ton of money off commercials and whatever else it may be to make money off of it. Yeah. And it's worth noting that that's just including football. Total mm-hmm. athletics programs rake in another 25 to 50% of that um, if you're including a, you know, a, a school's total athletic programs. I mean, in 2014, what you uh, in 2012 and 2013, you said that Texas made about 106 million. Is that what you said? Nine million, yeah. 109 million. Uh, in 2014, their all of their athletics programs made 187 million. Wow. Over that, so um, you know, you're still looking at over, you know, like almost meeting that that amount with all the other sports combined as well. Sure. Yeah, I also saw something. Uh, the NCAA off of last year's NBA. Or, sorry, NCAA men's basketball championship made $920 million in revenue just off of one game. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure as March Madness goes, each game builds in revenue. But so easily enough to say schools and the NCAA and broadcasting companies are making billions of dollars off of these sports that these student athletes are playing, right? So, Mm -hmm. Paul, you were talking about how, you know, it's you have to look at the whole show, the whole venture as one collective thing. But the athletes are the ones out there for 40 to 60 minutes that people are rooting for and that I think are really drawing the people to the game. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't I don't don't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, without. You know, it's, it's kind of a classic argument of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Sure. Um, in this sense, you know, if you don't have the athletes, uh, you don't have a venue. Um, so I, I, I absolutely agree that the athletes draw people there. But uh, I was thinking while you all were talking, I was recounting the times of uh, directing Pep Band and we would have the entire show rundown for the entire event, let's say for basketball, which was a lot different than female basketball, which was a lot different than volleyball. And the rundown essentially is probably an older model, maybe like pre, you know, television broadcasts or media or what it is like for smaller schools. And um, it's also the same for in high schools, even uh, that, you know, advertisers donate to the school and they want time or a spot. And so, you have to play music at a certain time and be done before an ad spot uh, is done. So advertisers at the actual game, not even advertisers for video broadcast rights, but advertisers for people at the game is a way that these athletic teams and schools make revenue, which is based off the players. Obviously the players bring them there and they have a captivated audience. Definitely something that inflates that overall revenue, I think. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one thing that I kind of thought about, so 
to me, sports and watching sports, it's entertainment, it's performance, and it made me think of what is other entertainment, what's another performance that a school might put on. So a school might put on a musical or a play or a choir or band show, and I've never heard of, you know, an Ohio State choir concert or band show, play or musical drawing in 108,000 people. Um, so it, what I wanted to compare it to is you can't really compare student athletes and college performers apples to apples for that reason to me. However, you can say, okay, if you have someone who is college age and is getting educated at, you know, some very high-end performing arts school and then during their time in college is also performing, they're getting the chance to go on and make money. However, when you're in college and you're playing a college sport, the NCAA strictly forbids you from making money off of that sport, even if it's not through the school. So I guess what I wanted to dive into now is, should student athletes be paid by the schools for their services, and why or why not? And I think I'd like to start off with Hayden. So I'm going to come right out with the unpopular opinion for an athlete and say no. So I have in front of me um, something from the Institute for College Access and Success, um, so in Pennsylvania, 71% of students leave a four-year institution um, in debt, averaging about $32,528. And of course, that's in-state. Um, Out-of-state would be $50,286. Um, so if you take that and say, all right, college athlete, um, you don't have to pay that. And this is now, this is tuition alone, taking into consideration the amount of hours that you are allowed to be uh, mandatory hours that coaches are allowed to put on a college athlete over the course of those four years. Um, that college athlete is making about 56 to $83 an hour just being a college athlete, considering how much um, they make off of not having to pay for that college education. Right. So um, that's just scholarships. That doesn't include the gifts that, that you receive and, you know, that, the workout nope. that you're talking about. Yep, that doesn't include gifts, that doesn't include books, that doesn't include um, gear, that does not include um, tutors, medical costs, not to um, throw into mix uh, the the opportunity to have some of these high-end um, training facilities, you know, your workouts, you know, um, all these different things that aren't taken into consideration to that $56 to $83 an hour Um uh, and not to mention the facilities. Um, so depending on, you know, not just for training, but for relaxation for these college athletes. Um, so I came from a smaller school. I didn't exactly, you know, I had a nice locker room. I enjoyed my locker room. I had leather couches and plenty of flat screen video TV. games in there, right? Yeah, we, we had a, we had an Xbox, um, at <laughs> one point, um, at one point, then, did it get taken away? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you only get Xbox when you're winning. <laughs> um, kids were skipping class. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but you know, you hear some of these like legendary schools, like the university of, uh, Oregon. And I mean, we've seen like the ESPN 30 to thirties where they have their student athlete facility contains an entire library, a graphics lab, study spaces, television lounges, uh, kitchen net, um, 25 academic offices, 35 tutor rooms, 114 Ferrari leather seats. 
if you're going to go anywhere, you're really, you know, the University of Oregon is going to have some of the nicest stuff. So then I continued to look at other schools that weren't known as much for their facilities. So the University of Tennessee, um, the Anderson Training Center is really interesting. So their medical clinic, they have a pharmacy and an x-ray room within their athletic facility. They have an amphitheater for video game lounging um, and watching movies. I mean, these... Uh, I mean, some of these facilities are just, I mean, imagine as a, a normal student having these kind of, having this yeah. kind of access, um, wouldn't that be fun? I wonder, um, much, I wonder how much Peyton Manning donated to that and gave the money for that. Yeah. Well, and that being said at the university of Oregon, when I was talking about the Ferrari leather seats, that's a lot of Nike. Nike really throws a lot of money oh, back sure. at them. Um, the university of Alabama, they have an arcade, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a whole lot of really great, great facilities. And a lot of this does come from donors, um, whether it's alumni, um, or companies that, you know, just are inspired by that university and want to donate. Sure. So that being um, said, a lot of this is coming from donors. So that revenue that we were talking about before the school doesn't even have to use that revenue to provide all this for their student athletes. Yeah. Um, so you know, Flip into the other side of the coin, or did you have more that you wanted to? Oh no, continue. We, all right, we'll flip it over to Brandon for a second. So, Brandon, you had a very different take on this. So, do you want to go ahead and explain that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I, I believe that college athletes should be paid. Um, I think that what Hayden has laid out is, um, you know, a well thought out argument, and I, I agree with a few points. But um, my argument really comes from the belief that ultimately colleges are businesses. Um, even if they're labeled as a nonprofit institution, all colleges operate as businesses and um, in m even more ways than most corporate businesses uh, that you'd see outside of the education field, um, they're subject to many of the same laws as businesses. And there are antitrust laws that are in the United States to stop to do a couple of different things, like to stop corporations from becoming too power powerful and, and monopolizing. But the many antitrust laws are, are, they exist for the purpose of protecting consumers from corporate abuse. And if you, if you ask the uneducated person or someone who is just a little less informed on this subject than maybe we are, or, or like Hayden is being someone who went through it, and you ask them why we don't pay college athletes, a lot of times it, the answer is just because that's how, that's how it is. It, it, I mean, there are hundreds upon hundreds of, of universities and colleges in the United States that have athletic programs. So how is it that like basically none of them pay their student athletes? And, and I, I, it's my belief that by not paying student athletes, I think that colleges are being complicit in their silence and, and allowing these, these, student athletes who are in a sense employees or consumers um, to be exploited. And I think that a lot of people say that the college level is the amateur level, um, which could mean, I guess, one of two things you know, that they're just not professionals. So they're not good enough or they don't have enough talent to be paid, um, which that depends on the school and, and on the student athlete. But I think that the amateurism ends at, at high school and, or maybe, and I would even concede that it could end at the club level. So for anyone who's not aware, club sports are a 
a competitive level of athleticism where a, a college or a university can have a club team, like a club basketball team or a club soccer team. And they would represent the university that they are from and they would go to another school and face their school's club team in a game that would be competitive and there would be a winner and there could be trophies and, and recognition and thing like that, things like that. But they are in an NCAA sanctioned event. Sure. And they're not um, going to draw 80,000 yeah. people to come watch them. It's going to be fun competition and you're going to work hard for it, but you're not Correct. drawing any crowds or generating any revenue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not to undermine the work that these, that the club athletes do, but that's, that's, that's probably where the amateurism ends. In my, in my opinion, everything above that is professional in a way, because as we've already mentioned, these colleges are making so much money and these coaches are making so much money. And the people who are surrounding this, each program make so much money that I think it's just foolish to say that these people are amateurs. I think it's just that it's been history that that's how it's been. And we need to update the way we, we look at this. Sure. Yeah. And, and you mentioned coaches. So um, obviously the coach is an employee of the university and not a student of the university, but uh, Nick Saban makes $7 million a year to coach Alabama, you know? So those players on the team can make Nick Saban look really good. They can also make him look really bad. And uh, you know, he's the one who kind of chooses whether or not they play. So Absolutely. And that's another way that you can look at it. These athletes are employees of Nick Saban or of the, of the Alabama football program. You know, Nick Saban will not make $7 million a year if he doesn't win games and winning games comes to the, you know, it's the coaching staff as well as the training and everything. But ultimately, you know, it's the players who go out there and make it happen. And so if the players are losing games, then their boss or their coach is going to look bad and he can lose his job. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to move on to one more part of this. So, you know, maybe they don't have the threat of being fired for poor performance, but Hayden, I'd like for you to talk through your day, both during the season and in the off season. So not only did I live with Hayden, we shared a room. So, you know, Hayden has one of the hardest or one of the best work ethics of anyone I've ever seen. And it was amazing how much time he had to spend for the football team. So Hayden, could you go through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks Joe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, it, so in season, um, real so quick, that's real quick, Paul and Brandon, you guys have awesome work ethics too. I'm not trying to knock you. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> They're okay. Yeah, I was kind of saying, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so typically in season, um, so that's just the beginning of August when camp starts. Um, actually, I should say camp is almost its own time. But um, so in season, it's typical to wake up at about six o'clock, depending on how far away you are from the facility. Um, I'd wake up uh, at about six. Meetings would start at 630. Um, they would run until give or take 830. Practice would begin at about 915. Um, so we'd be out and that's on the field by about 910 in your lines at 915 you'd practice until maybe 10 30 
um, 10.30, maybe 11 o'clock. Probably 11 o'clock is a more realistic time. Um, 11 o'clock, and uh, you'd clean up. And so um, every other day, the offense and defense would switch. But um, after practice at 11 o'clock, you would have about a half an hour lift um, in season. Um, so just a quick workout, make sure you know your strength's keeping up. And then it was... Um, lunch class and so on and so forth. And a lot of athletes put in extra time outside of that um, because they're coaches, especially if you're, if you're going to be a starter, if you're going to be one of those um, higher up guys, it was almost expected of you to watch an extra hour or two of game film a week. Again, it's like an hour or two outside of that practice that, you know, a lot of starters are expected to watch film. Um, so when we're going into the off season, it's a completely different setup. Um, so it's a lot of more uh, lifting and conditioning. We don't have a game for our bodies to be ready for. Um, so we can be sore the next day and it's not going to affect our performance on the field because it doesn't matter. Um, we're just going to be doing sprints. Um, so what it'll happen is um, during the off season, there's, there's, I want to say four different segments of off season workouts. Um, there's going back into classes for the winter time um, to where you start off just uh, maybe a two hour lift. So there's different lifting groups. I was usually in the earliest lifting group. So I would go from seven to nine, uh, I'd go and I'd get a workout in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, Saturdays, uh, we were invited to come in, um, which wasn't much of an invite, but more of a, <laughs> Hey, <laughs> you need to be here. Um, Saturday mornings were yeah, um, to come in and do extra, you know, yoga, stretching, um, anything to kind of regen work to get your body back and ready for the next week. Um, so aside, so that was your typical going into winter. And then we had something called mat drills. Mat drills are the worst experience of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, horrible. Uh, got me in great shape though. Uh, so my freshman year, um, the coaches had actually failed to get the field at the time they wanted. So instead of going later, they went earlier. So Madrill started at about 5.30 in the morning, which means I was waking up at 5 um, and you have to be on the field in your line at 5.15 for Madrills. So at about 5.15, I would, I would sit there, um, go through mat drills. And mat drills weren't very long. It was about an hour and a hour, maybe hour and a half of just go time. Just it was nonstop going. Um, and then after that, I would usually go back, take a nap, and then go to class. Um, and then during the summertime, it's similar to the going into winter to where you have those Monday through Friday workouts. They're two hours long in the morning. And then camp um, is probably the most time um, time consuming part. So not every, um, athlete is actually invited to camp when it came to football. Um, there's the one Oh five. So 105, um, football players were invited to come into camp. Um, and when you came into camp, it was, um, basically by <laughs> goodbye, mom and dad and girl. Um, you were asked to, it would be Monday through Friday ish. Um, you'd have stuff on the weekend most of the time. Um, Saturday would have maybe one little meeting and Sundays you might have had a meeting as well. Um, so it would be, you know, six o'clock breakfast, six thirty breakfast. And then, um, you'd have, you know, a workout and then, or you'd have practice, then you'd have meetings, then you'd have a lunch break, then you'd have a workout in the afternoon and you'd have more meetings until about like seven at night. If you were lucky, you know, the linebackers were probably there until like nine um, so basically to simplify all that <laughs> year round, you're putting in an extra two to five hours of hard work each day on top of your 
classes, studying, uh, you know, group projects, working on any yeah. projects, and then any other extracurricular activities that you're doing. Yeah. Yep. Um, about. It's fair. Um, so, one thing that I was thinking of, uh, kind of while you were going through that, was that. So, what happens for the college athlete who, you know, performed extremely well in high school and maybe gets a full ride to college through that? So, basically, because they're no longer, or because they did so well in high school and positioned themselves so well, they're getting less compensation through scholarships and whatever else it may be than the guy who was only brought to the school because he's good at football and otherwise would not be academically able to get in. Hmm. So what do you guys think of that? Well, I, I, first of all, that depends on the school. Sure. Um, obviously with D three schools, their their NCAA regulations are that they're not allowed to offer mm-hmm. any athletic scholarships, but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of D two and D one, you'll find that mainly at D one powerhouses. So right. your Alabama, Ohio state, Florida, Texas, Texas A&M, the schools like that, where they're commanding on the field. Um, you know, you know the, people know them for their, for their teams. Um, it also depends on the, the other finances. It, it, you know, a, a student who is coming from a, a one parent household and a first, who is a first generation college student, whose parents make under 40, who's, you know, the parent they live with makes under 40,000 a year, they're going to get a decent amount in need-based financial aid. Um, and so, you know, all in all total, total finances, that student might, might end up getting more than the person who's there on a decent athletic scholarship. Now, in terms of a full ride scholarship, 99.9% of schools that, ha- that offer full ride athletic scholarships will also offer full ride academic scholarships. And so there's a variety of financial aid sources. Again, it's, it just comes down to what the school wants to prioritize. Sure. And how, how they want to recruit because, you know, at the end of the day, most schools make their money off of tuition. Yeah. So before we go into the next segment, I guess the only person we haven't really heard an opinion from, Paul, do you have any opinion on whether or not student athletes should get paid and why or why not? Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of split down the middle on this. Uh, initially kind of previous to research, um, my reaction was that they should not be paid. Um, for the, the reasons mostly of the, the tax disparity that would be, which is something that, uh, maybe isn't as considered as much, um, that a salary to match the compensation of what they get for scholarships would be far exceeding any other employee, uh, probably at the school, especially in that skill set. Like they, they are exceptional athletes. There's no doubt, but they're not top tier athletes on the world stage, perhaps they do. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not, they're not of the professional level or they would be in the professional level. Right. Um, You know, they're training to be at that level. Many of them, they hope to be, but it is, it is a slim margin. Um, There was something about, I think it was, let's check my sources like 7% of high school athletes make it into college and 2% of those are into D1. 
Right. Uh, I, yeah, I remember seeing that earlier. Too. Um, and so it's like, and then from that, those who make it into the pros out of that percentage is is even less. So it's still, to me, is an amateur market. And in sports like baseball and hockey, you have my, a minor league system where athletes go into that. There's also D1 sports of those sports at some of those schools. But there's minor league systems, so post-college, they can earn some money as they are trying to uh, make it into the professional market. Uh, But what splits me down the middle is there probably is a middle ground of similar to what I received of your your, um, scholarship compensation to, you know, some type of hours worked on top of that at some I don't want to say kickback, but something of that, you know, time put in. There's plenty of things that many different programs do, whether it be, I know specifically with music, you know, we put in so many extra hours that are not mandatory, but if you want to succeed, you kind of have to put them in. You don't get compensated for that. Um, There's other disciplines that require that as well. So I, as far as the overall college experience, especially at a high level, I don't know if that's unique to athletics, but athletics is very much a moneymaker. It is very much in the front. So there's probably a middle ground. Initially, I was a no, they shouldn't be paid, but I do think there probably is some sort of a... Sure. And, you know, I think uh, it is something that's tough to look at because you have to look at, okay, the amount of work that they put in, do you look at that or do you look at the amount of money that they generate for the school through playing football or basketball or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, see, I, I think that they're a product of the brand of the school and the school is leveraging, uh, you know, whatever their talent they have. But if, if, if that particular student is at the school, it would be anyone else. So they're a part of that brand and they're helping to build that brand. It's not necessarily, it's not like they're Aaron Rodgers and they're winning. Yeah. The now when it, when it comes to in. like, when it comes to like Jersey sales of like the starting quarterback, that's where it gets a little bit more specific as far as earnings go. Um, but when it comes to actual ticket sales, revenues, ad spots, um, that's, that's a little bit different. And I think the parody of like excessive pay for um, college coaches and athletic directors, there's probably more of a problem there than there is a problem of, the athletes themselves getting compensated because I believe that those institutions are first an academic. Secondly, they have sports, maybe a great sports, uh, you know, whether it be football only or football, basketball, they're just a powerhouse that should be fed back more into the athletics than it is in some of the powerhouse uh, athletic schools. Sure. Okay. So one thing that you brought up that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't even thought about discussing, but I think it could be a good thing to dive into for at least a few minutes. Uh, So yeah, hockey has, you know, the AHL baseball has the minor leagues, basketball has the D league. And then there's LeVar ball saying that, (laughs) that he's going to steal all the college basketball athletes and make his own league. <laughs> but you know, there's oh, not God. not a football minor league. You know, it's for these student athletes. It's okay. You can either go to college and get this degree that you might not even work towards, and or what if there were a different option? Like, what if there were a minor leagues of football that people could get into, and it were structured similar to the college football side of college football instead of the academic side. 
Yeah. Um, so Joe, I'll go right ahead and speak to that. Um, so although I'll, I'll say, so they do have something, it's not structured as well as, I mean, minor league baseball is one of the, the best examples and one of the best structures that you could have of, of something that's not quite, you know, the major leagues, but um, it's still very organized. It's still very, you know, cut clear. Um, so there's a lot of um, semi-professional football leagues out there to where you don't have to be a college football player or have any college football experience to, to try out. Like if you have the athletic ability, um, you have the opportunity to, to play on these teams and you do make a shiny penny depending on, of course, which one you go to. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you look at like people might go to the CFL if they're not good enough to make it in the NFL. <laughs> but what mm-hmm. I'm thinking of is with hockey and baseball, you have your top prospects for the NHL and the MLB playing in these developmental leagues. Whereas yeah. football, the top prospects are going to Alabama, Florida, Notre Dame, uh, Ohio state, they're going to a college for this where not only can they not make money, but you know, they have to be there for at least two years before they're even eligible to play in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. my, my first question would be is would you guys, if you had, if we had minor league football in the area um, and the top prospects for the NFL started going to minor league football instead of colleges, do you think that they could draw crowds similar to college football? Or do you think the tradition would take, you know, 50 years to build if we were to do that? Yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head right there. Um, if, if there was a minor league football league that had built up a presence over, over the years, then yeah, probably. But I mean, at this point in time, if, someone tried to make a, you know, an American minor league football, uh, you know, like league, I hate to be redundant, but if there was a, a minor league, uh, for football, th- it, it wouldn't even draw a crowd. I mean, you could argue the merits of it for people who are not looking to get a degree and not looking to enroll in a school who just wants to practice their, their talents and eventually enter the draft. But I mean, there, like, uh, I think, you know, Paul, Paul mentioned it earlier. There's a college sports are an experience yeah. there. There are people who, who like college sports, not because they're just like, like, you know, there, there are people who watch, um, like UNC basketball because it's UNC basketball. It's just, right. it's, a, it has a cult following. They can't, um, even if you're not like team. from the state. Yeah. Yeah. Like even if you're not yeah. like from the state or, or, atten- or if you don't attend the school, like people just like that experience that college sure. sports bring. Um, and so I don't think that like, like a minor league would really be able to work. Plus, you know, people who argue against uh, paying student athletes say that a lot of times that, you know, like school should be their priority and, and, and paying the the student athletes will just, will distract them from that. But Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, I, I think that people who argue that are giving people are giving the students too much credit. I mean, there is, there is notorious academic misconduct hearings who, that happen at like every, every powerful school where student athletes will um, you, like have tutors or teachers or professors even, or coaches just do their, their schoolwork for them so that they can practice on the game. <laughs> sure. And like, it doesn't happen to everyone. That's completely unfair to say, but, but I mean, for what, 18 years at, at, um, at the university of North Carolina, I mean, stu- like students took, uh, fake classes that um, <laughs> that like advisors just put athletes into, and um, they would earn an A and stay eligible. Um, and like, I mean, 
I think. Well, I mean, and even around so, ten people had to be disciplined for that. Sure. I want to get to you know Title Nine and compensation for female athletes. Is it equal pay for equal work, or is it you should get paid based on the amount of revenue that you generate? My my proposal would be that the rules and regulations in Title Nine just be reworded slightly. Um, so as they stand right now, um, there people kind of misunderstand Title IX in a lot of different ways, mainly because people assume that it only has to do with athletics, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. But the the probably the number one biggest misunderstanding with Title IX as it relates to athletics is that men and women's sports must be equal, just flatline, which is not necessarily true. It, it argues and advocates for, for equality on, um, on a lot of different areas like um, equitable treatment and benefits, um, gifts, training facilities, medical treatment. They all must be equal. But the mm-hmm. only thing that Title IX allows distinguishment in is scholarship money. And they say that um, the only provision that, that requires that the same dollars be spent proportional to participation is scholarships. And so you can break down the, the participation in a couple of different ways, um, whether it's you know, how much they practice on the field or how, how many hours they spend in training facilities, how many games they have per year. There's a couple of different ways that you can break it down. But what I propose is that at D1, D2, D3, and men and women's sports, you, you just make, you know, if you're going to make, or if you're going to allow college athletes to make money, you have to make that proportional to participation and, and whatever other factors, you know, that, that you would deem necessary. I, I think that it would be fair if you were to rework or reword the Title IX language to, um, for scholarships and um, salaries to be proportional to participation and activity. Okay, sure. We've reached everything on my agenda. Um, do you guys have any closing comments? I guess we can start with Hayden and then go Brandon and Paul. If you guys have any, you know, closing comments or anything else you'd like to say, any more shout outs, um, Hayden, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, obviously, you know, I think this is a great conversation to have. Um, I think this is uh, the way to go about it. Um, uh, obviously, you know, things are so different, not only from Division One to Division Three, but when you're talking about the University of Alabama and then you're talking about the University of Akron, um, you know, big differences there in the money making, um, how much the program costs, you know, all, all that kind of different stuff. So it, it really is um, a university or a college to college basis, you know, higher education, higher education facility, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, as you as you kind of go through in this this uh, pursuit of whether or not college athletes should be paid, um, I guess the conversation because you know it really started with um, you know the NCAA football game. You know they were making those video games of those college athletes, and um, you know they were like, "Hey, I should be paid for my likeness." Right. Um, so uh, you know, and, and then they just cut that outright. They said, we'd rather just not have that video game. So I, and so I think, you know, taking that into mind, it's so interesting that they were that like the decisions and the process that the NCAA and, and the universities within the NCAA 
um, are willing to just kind of work their way around the conversation rather than really have it at all. Right. So I, and I, and I think, you know, whether you're for it or not, um, I think I think it's it's wrong of the NCAA to not have this conversation. Sure. How about you, Brandon? Uh, yeah, I, I you know I, I think that I just want to reiterate my my stance that you know these colleges are businesses, and I think that when when they bring on these student athletes and they force them to sign these contracts that are kind of waiving their rights to uh, to a lot of different things. Um, they're, 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 I think that they're in, in an essence violating some antitrust law that is, that is stopping these students from, from having fair representation in, in their own say. I mean, these coaches, the university presidents, athletic directors, everyone all the way down to Joe Schmo who <laughs> sells, you know, players jerseys or, um, gets to stat, you know, gets to, I don't know, print off a, a jersey and stack Baker Mayfield's name onto the back of, of it and then sell it for $150. You know, everyone can make money off of these student athletes except for the student athlete, his or herself. And, I, I you know, shouldn't the athlete have some say in what happens, in you know, with their name and their likeness? And I think that if you're not going to pay student athletes, you know, a, a, a significant salary, I think you should at least let them, I don't know, be able to unionize or something along those lines. Um, I think Taylor Branch, who's like a, a historian and an author who who oversaw that NCAA v. O'Bannon case, like over the the likenesses in video games, I th- he even argued that you know you don't it doesn't start at the university paying these students fifty thousand dollars a year. It doesn't start at that. It starts with the student athletes being allowed to have a voice and being allowed to argue their case for why they should receive different or more compensation. And I think that that's the starting point because mm. every school is going to have a different approach to it. They're going to have to rework the way that they generate revenue and, and, and disperse scholarships. But that's the starting point is allowing student student athletes to be able to have some say in what happens to their likeness. Sure. Very well said. Paul, do you have any closing remarks? Yeah, uh, I, I actually completely agree with that statement, which leans me more towards some sort of compensation for student athletes. Uh, I think that when you get to leveraging student athletes or anyone's likeness um, or whatever that person's profitability is because of that own individual's brand, um, you have to compensate them in, in some way. And the NCAA video game case, it's, it's, that was a fascinating uh, turn of events in the sense that, like what Hayden said, they didn't, they just decided not to continue with the game in order to avoid the conversation. (laughs) And that's not good. And there is no unionization for them to have a voice. And I do think that that is also important because they have no uh, power in, in any of these conversations. Right. Uh, they can't demand more pay for their work because they get no pay for their work. <laughs> correct. <laughs> correct. Mm-hmm. They're, in a, they're in a tough spot. Cool. Thanks for joining me for this discussion tonight, guys. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was yeah. great. Absolutely. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Absolutely. 
Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone, thank you for listening to the first ever episode of We Disagree. Let's talk about it. I hope you enjoyed our thoughtful discussion on college athlete compensation and maybe gain some new perspectives or learn something. If you'd like to support the podcast further, head over to wedisagreeltai.com and check out the daily discussion. On the website, you can leave a comment and let us know what you want to hear us talk about. I'm always looking for people to talk with as well, so if you'd like to join the discussion and come onto the podcast, let me know by sending me an email at joe at wedisagreeltai.com. I'd also like to thank Paul, Brandon, and Hayden again for joining me on this first episode. Now, lastly, I'm going to ask for your help. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with whoever you can on whatever platforms you prefer, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, just texting people about the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. I'd love to get the word out about it. Thank you again for listening to the first ever episode of We Disagree. Let's talk about it. I hope you enjoyed it.